0: Left Fielders, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Our
1: fees are competitive in the market. We consistently review them, comparing them to our main competitors. And with our main competitors, they're fairly competitive. One thing I also say is, I've found that you also in this industry get what you pay for. So if you want a custodian that's going to be pretty hands-on, make sure things are done correctly, being able to contact them and receive responses. You're probably going to pay more than a custodian that simply sets you up an account and maybe sets you up checkbook control and then you're off. Hey, fielders. this is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pyfer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top. Or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you
0: there.
2: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community.
0: This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Juan Deshawn with us. He is a certified IRA specialist at Quest Trust Company. Juan educates investors on the use of self-directed IRAs for alternative assets and uses his own IRA to fund private money loans. So Juan, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So the way we usually start out here is just like to hear your financial journey how did you get to where you are at Quest and anything else, private money loans, kind of what you're doing in the real estate world as well?
1: Yeah, not a problem. So it's quite interesting. So I actually have been in Quest for quite some time now. I'm going on six years and I fell into Quest randomly, actually. I didn't know anything about real estate investing in general. I was pursuing a financial career, more of those traditional becoming a CFA type of situation. However, I kind of fell into an opportunity to work for this company as I was getting started, and it kind of just blossomed into I've been here forever since, and I've learned a lot through it. Right, So my expertise has been with IRA accounts for the past five years. I've taken my certified IRA services professional exam as well, which just means I'm a nerd when it comes to IRA (laughs) publication. Honestly, it's a three-hour exam that we take after a week of studying, and we know enough to guide people on what they can and cannot do as it relates to the retirement accounts. And then on the other side, Quest has helped me a lot learn about real estate in general. So there's the IRA side where we get into the boring stuff, the IRS publications, where I know a lot about. And then there's a real estate side where most of my investors are real estate investors. And so I've had to learn about the industry, understand the investment types, and I've seen so many deals come through my table that we have over 18,000 clients here at Quest. And so I have conversations on a daily basis for the last five years. You can imagine I've seen a lot of things, and especially the most popular thing it being private money lending, passive investing, Me personally, I've also even invested through my even Roth IRA. I practice what I preach and I do private money lending as well. And I tell people, if I can do it, anyone can do it, honestly. So I'm sure we'll touch on that moving forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? If we're going to have anyone here to talk about IRAs, I would prefer a nerd IRA (laughs) guy than anything else, because that's what we want to dig into. We really want to understand how all of this works. So the first question is, what is a self-directed IRA?
1: Yeah, great question. So, I want to debunk any myth that the quote unquote self directed piece means that's any different IRA account than the ones that most of America is traditionally used to. So, when we think IRA accounts, we're thinking traditional, Roth, SAP, simple, even sometimes 401k is grouped into that category. And we know and understand it in the space of, okay, my employer gives me a 401k, I leave that employer, then I transition it out to an IRA account with one of those companies like Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Merrill Lynch and it kind of is just invested in the market. That's what most people's understanding of retirement accounts is, and it's just something extra. It's pretty much in the back burner. However, the self-directed IRA, the reason why we use that term is for marketing purposes and to help differentiate between accounts that you can use in the traditional sense of investing into the stock market and accounts that you can use to invest privately. So when I mention self-directed IRA, I'm talking about the ones you can invest privately. And so what that means is you get the same tax benefits that any IRA account would give you anywhere else. You have the same rules on when you could take the money out, what you're able to invest into as any IRA anywhere else, but you're able to take more control. And the control allows you to diversify your portfolio within your retirement account to invest in what we say here at Quest is invest in what you know best. So if a real estate investor comes to me and says, I have retirement capital, I simply ask them the question, Would you be more comfortable investing in the stock market, which you may not know a lot about and hope it rises throughout the years? That's kind of our everyone's game plan. We hope it goes up. Or take control of those funds, invest them into an opportunity that you are more familiar with. Let's say someone comes to you and says, I'm raising capital for multifamily. Well, that make more sense for you. Or in my personal case, someone says to me, I'm a real estate investor. I'm looking for some funding so I can flip this home, buy this land and then sell it, develop it. But I need private money they're going to pay me 10% interest. And I think that I can have more control in my investment and my returns if I understand it more. So that's what I do. And so that's kind of the idea behind self-directed. It's really taking control, investing in what you understand. But I just wanted to debunk that. It's no different IRA account. It's not like a fancy legal term. If you try to Google a publication where it says that, it won't.
0: So when you say take control, what does that mean when you take control? I understand you put your IRA through Fidelity or Schwab or one of those, then it's basically just a line account with your other accounts, but it's special money, right? So what does it mean to take control and have your own IRA that you can invest however you like?
1: Yeah, so Fidelity Charles Schwab might even paint a picture of self-direction, but what they're gonna do is tell you, hey, you have control to log in your portal (laughs) and let us know what kind of plans or investments that you have, right? But in my eyes, that's not complete control. Complete control is gonna be you being able to call Quest and say, hey, these are my investments that I wanna make. I have found this opportunity and this is kind of what I want to do. Like no one's going to tell me otherwise. Our job as a custodian, when you go to the self-direction side, is not to tell you whether something's a good or a bad deal. I can see the worst deal on earth and cannot tell you, do not make this investment. The only time I can tell you don't make this investment is if it's going to be blatantly prohibited, meaning it's going to put jeopardize your IRA and it may become taxable, or maybe penalized, et cetera, right? but. That's what I mean by take control. You are in the driver's seat now, as opposed to the passenger maybe directing, I want to buy this stock. You're in the driver's seat now. You're calling us and saying, I want to invest with ABC Company.
0: Okay. And you mentioned custodian. So can you talk about the role of the custodian, what you do, and how you work with the investor?
1: Yeah. So in order to have an IRA account, you have to have a custodian, and that can be a Fidelity Charles Schwab, or that can be someone like myself or our competitors. And what the custodian does is it, provides a gap between you and your retirement account. What the IRS does not want is you to have complete control of your funds because what they say is if you want to use your funds however you want without any oversight at all, take a distribution, a withdrawal, and pay us taxes and possibly penalty, right? You can use it once you serves, but if it's in the retirement account, you got to play by our rules. And the only way that we can ensure that you will is by going through a third party, a custodian. On the other side of that, custodians will also handle things that people just don't want to do, right? The administration of the accounts requires separate bookkeeping and record keeping. Bookkeeping, meaning funds coming in and out of your account when you're making investments, of course. Record keeping, being at times tax forms. So if an individual takes out a distribution or a withdrawal, that triggers a tax form. On an annual basis, you have to report to the IRS your values on a form called a 5498. No one wants to do that either, right? So there's a bunch of these little things that IRAs need to have done throughout the year that wouldn't make sense for a person to do it. Otherwise, they'd be taking on another job. So that's why custodians exist. And the custodian you choose will determine whether or not you can, quote unquote, have it as self-directed or go the traditional regular route. So what a Fidelity does and what we do custodian-wise is identical, but Fidelity will let you buy Apple stock and Quest Trust Company will let you buy real estate, physical land, right? They won't do it. I have tons of clients who have accounts at multiple custodians and move money back and forth as needed. So you're not subject to just having one custodian. Theoretically, you can have 100 IRA accounts as long as you can keep track of that and to the IRS, all one IRA. So again, we're just here to provide that buffer between you and your IRA account, the arm's length distance, allowing you to make transactions, but also handle all the details, all the taxation and tax forms involved.
0: You also mentioned uh, prohibited transactions. Can you talk about what those are and how you make sure you avoid those, obviously?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So number one, I always say, especially if you're in a self-directed situation, calling a custodian will help determine whether or not something's going to be prohibited. But to understand the rule, it can be very simple if you understand one thing, understanding who you cannot make investments with. This is typically not talked about when someone that's not familiar with self-direction because when you're investing into public stocks, you're typically not falling into this category unless you're Elon Musk and you're investing in a Tesla stock. But typically, there's no issues. But what it is, is you cannot invest with certain people or entities. If so, it becomes a distributable event in the year it occurred. So if you do one of these mistakes, then ultimately the IRS says that investment was null and void the moment it occurred, and usually they don't catch it till three years later, And what happens is you now owe taxes and penalties for maladjustment of your taxation on a yearly basis. So it gets pretty ugly pretty quick. But what it is is here, you can't invest with yourself, your spouses, your children, your parents, and the spouses of your children. So essentially the immediate family, meaning I cannot take my IRA account and loan funds to my wife, or I can't take my IRA account and invest into my father's business or to my children's business. And the reason why is because they consider these individuals and their entities fiduciaries to their IRA accounts. If you pass away, typically the line of succession is going to be spouses, children, or parents if you don't have a spouse or a child. And so they automatically disqualify those people. It's kind of too close for comfort, right? If I give my spouse money or loan her money and then we live together, that money is probably also going to be beneficial to me, right? So you are really not using your IRA account for what it's meant to be used by. And at that point, you might as well just take the money out and use it how you want. So they automatically disqualify those individuals. But if you did a transaction with them, that's what's called a prohibited transaction. So as a custodian, when you call us and you tell us you want to make an investment with ABC LLC, where John Smith, usually the first thing we're going to ask you is, is that company, any company that you or those individuals I mentioned own, right? If the answer is yes, there could be some problems.
0: Are there any other prohibited transactions? One time I heard that you couldn't invest in gold. There are certain other asset classes that you had to steer away from. Is that still the case? So yeah,
1: more like investment restrictions. There are certain classes of things that you cannot invest into. Actually, right, there's actually only two. Life insurance policies and collectibles are two things that you cannot invest into. Those are the majority, major categories. When we look into collectibles, some coins fall under that category. If you're buying gold and silver, you definitely can. And If you're buying coins, there's actually a few specific ones that are allowed. But for the most part, if they're a collectible type of coin, then you cannot. It's actually funny. There's a list of these. You can just look up prohibited collectibles in an IRA. And ultimately, one of them is even alcoholic beverages. Apparently, people are collecting alcoholic beverages. If you collect alcoholic beverages in your IRA account, I feel like you have other problems to deal with <laughs> other than the IRS. Right. So there are only two things the IRS says you cannot invest into. And that's those two categories I mentioned, which is interesting because it hasn't changed in years, but all this time, self-direction, I feel like is just now coming to light. But this whole time, we've been allowed to invest into real estate or other assets. It's just the custodians, the banks, the corporations, they weren't making money that way. So that's not what they promote.
0: Right. Exactly. They want you to invest in their products, not in products you find on your own. So- There's a self-directed IRA and a self-directed 401k, which has about a hundred different names, I think, of what people call it. So what's the difference between the self-directed IRA and the self-directed 401k?
1: Awesome. So yeah, I actually call it the solo 401k, right? And how I differentiate the two, I think of the 401k as the car with all the bells and whistles. I mean, it's like the biggest truck you can think of. It's lifted. It's got everything you need inside interior wise. It's got everything. An IRA account is like a car, a regular car. It's going to get you to point A, to point B. Sometimes an IRA is better than a 401k for some and then for others, vice versa. First thing, when someone comes to me and says, I want a 401k plan, we have to first make sure you even qualify. So before I get into that, let's explain the differences. An IRA account is a personal account that anyone can have. Traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs are personal account types that as long as you have earned income, you can set up for yourself. You can have a job, at nine to five. And on the side, create a traditional or Roth IRA for yourself and contribute to it on a yearly basis and invest. So anyone can gain access to those. But there's another category that is, we categorize as employer plans for individuals who have businesses are sole proprietors don't have the, the corporation that is providing them with the 401k. Or maybe they do, but they also have a side hustle. It's a side business and they want to provide themselves with other 401k-ish type opportunities there are certain employer plans that may be available to you the three types are SEP simple and solo 401k so we'll jump to the solo k a solo k allows any individual who is a self-employed person with income that does not have any full-time employees this is a key thing there it's in the name solo and the reason why is because it allows you to set up basically a corporate 401k for me, myself, and I. Otherwise, if you have employees, full-time employees, you have to set up some 401k plans that allow for employees. And it's fair to all employees on the laws of how much you can contribute to each, matching, et cetera. But typically, a self-employed individual is going to come to me and say, I want a 401k plan because I want to maximize my contributions. I want to put as much as possible as I can in this plan, especially because it's just me, myself, and I. That sounds great. A 401k plan, you can contribute $61,000 a year right now to compare it to an IRA or Roth. An IRA is $6,000, right? If you're below 50. So that is a huge difference of numbers there. So you can theoretically put a lot of money into a 401k plan if you are self-employed. Other bells and whistles that it offers you is actually more control. So already with a self-directed, you get control. With a 401k, you get additional. So you take on a responsibility. By doing so, you take on a responsibility of being trustee slash custodian, that's what I call it. A 401k plan, it's almost DIY type. You, instead of calling Quest or calling your custodian and letting them know, I'd like to make an investment, you're able to physically make that investment on behalf of the 401k itself. You're able to sign and execute documentation and contracts on behalf of the 401k plan. The 401k is like its own separate entity with its own EIN number with you as the captain of the ship. So it allows that flexibility for a lot of real estate investors who are doing more hands-on investments. Think of it like a fix and flip. A flipper will have to call Quest and tell us, I need to pay X expense to pay out of my IRA account or send money to this contractor. That can be a real pain in the butt sometimes, especially if it's a Saturday and we're close. You can see how logistically that can be a pain. So in a solo 401k, who do you call yourself? You don't have to go through a custodian. You can simply write that check out of that 401k. So it automatically embeds a checkbook control aspect to it. So it's a, like I mentioned, a really bells and whistle type of plan. Anyone who's self-employed, has income, no employees should consider a 401k plan. If you're not 100% familiar with IRA accounts and the taxation and reporting, then I also recommend having on your team either a custodian that you can pick their brain about it or a CPA who's also familiar with the record keeping and bookkeeping requirements for 401k plans, because it's very easy to also mess up, right? Right. Custodians, you asked me earlier, what do custodians serve as? They also serve as making sure you don't mess up. Without the custodian, there's definitely room for error. And they're probably more audited than an IRA is because the IRS knows where there's room for error, there's room for taxation.
0: And you mentioned checkbook control on the 401k. Mm -hmm. And you can also have checkbook control of your IRA. Can you talk about that and the advantages there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first is to find checkbook control. So it's almost as simple as it sounds, but checkbook control is having the physical checkbook of your IRA account or 401k, physically being able to send checks, send money out of the retirement account without the need of funneling it through a custodian for the purpose of time and execution. Funds are never going to your account personally. It's always a separate account that's for the specific entity but you have complete control. So that's what I define checkbook control as. And yes, you are right. There are methods to acquire checkbook control access to an IRA, for an IRA. With the 401k, it's automatically within the plan documents. You end up being trustee, so it's just part of the plan. But with the IRA, what ends up happening, and this is actually a debated topic in our industry between attorneys, tax attorneys, CPAs, et cetera, where whether or not, or how to go about checkbook control. So there's two things. One, there are some custodians that say simply set up an entity like a trust or an LLC where the beneficiary or the owner is 100% the IRA in question. Then the manager or trustee of that entity would become yourself. And so there you automatically are fiduciary to your IRA through the trust or LLC by sending funds here and there. So from a custodial standpoint, What the custodian sees is IRA sends money to entity, LLC or trust, and that's it. Now the account holder has access to the funds and can disperse it through investments how they see fit. It's a wise strategy and it actually saves you sometimes money on custodial fees and sometimes saves you time and headaches for those logistics that we talked about that may be difficult when you don't have this. The other side of the coin, the other debated topic, is whether or not that's a prohibited transaction. So we talked about that before and who are the prohibited individuals. Yourself, spouses, children, parents, right? But you just place yourself in a position to have direct access to the IRA funds. And you're also there labeled as manager or trustee of that entity you established. So it starts to get into this grayish area. And the IRS has never said whether or not that's specifically prohibited because the argument is, well, you're doing everything for the purpose of the IRA. So the question is, well, could they get you on the fact that you just invested, sent IRA funds to an entity that you manage? And that's kind of where it's great. So some custodians stand on the side of it's fine. And some stand on the side of let's be more conservative and let's try to put someone in between there. So I have clients that sometimes to avoid any scrutiny, they place an individual who's not a disqualified person as manager trustee. For example, I would place my brother. My brother is a non-disqualified person. I can actually loan him money out of my Roth IRA account if I wanted to. And so in that case, I can actually place them as manager or trustee of the trust and LLC. So, what happens now is I've created kind of a buffer between myself and my IRA account. So, I've passed that sniff test for the IRS. And I've also created myself a sort of checkbook control where who has the authority to send checks out is my brother, who's probably easier for me at least to contact on a weekend than the custodian is. That's a way to kind of avoid that. When you look at grayish areas, the only thing that you can do from an IRA standpoint or custodian standpoint is look at court case studies. And the most recent one. Is an interesting one because it has checkbook aspects to it, but the reason why they were taken to court was another reason. So if we have some time, I can explain it, but this is called the McNulty case. Have you heard of that one before?
0: I've heard the name, but I could not tell you what it means. So I'd love to hear about it.
1: Cool. So the McNulty case was this couple, the McNulty's, they were investing into gold with their IRA accounts, nothing prohibited thus far. However, they did it through a checkbook control LLC IRA account. So they had an IRA that invest into an LLC. They were managers of the LLC, and then they used that to go ahead and buy gold. Not only did they do that, but they also then held the gold coins in their safe right at their home. What ended up happening here is it got taken to court whether or not this is a prohibited transaction for holding the gold in the safe and holding it at their home. Their LLC documentation and mail, everything always pointed to their home. So what the IRS ended up ruling is that it was prohibited for the purpose that they actually had the gold coins in their home possession. They had it in the safe that they used for their personal possessions as well. And so what they kind of did not like is that there was no separation between themselves and their assets at all. I mean, theoretically, what stopped them from taking those gold coins and selling it and then cashing out, right? No one's kind of overseeing this. So that became a problem. So they didn't touch on the fact that they invested into an LLC that they manage, which is quite interesting but they touched on the fact that they held assets and they had control of them. And the line that is kind of engraved into my mind now is that the IRS said it was the unfettered control of assets that they had, which ended up being the overall conclusion of that being prohibited. So the fact that they had unfettered control is the issue. I argue that unfettered control of assets includes cash, in my opinion. What stops an individual from getting checkbook control Putting it to an LLC and then using some of that money to pay themselves, buy Christmas presents, whatever it is, right? Honestly, nothing stops them because we don't see it anymore. It's just if they get caught. So, in my opinion, having unfettered control of cash is also prohibited. So, although they didn't necessarily say it's prohibited to invest into your own company, but I think the moment that you take control of assets that the IRA has, that's where it becomes a problem. So, it's interesting. And we kind of use that as a case study to stay on the conservative side. So, when I mentioned IRA custodians argue this all the time, we are on the conservative side for that reason. And there are some that say to each their own. So it's take it as you see it. But that's the gist of the law and court
0: case. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself before Tribest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, Tribest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using Tribest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at tribevest.com. Hey, left fielders, it's Matt Picenni, your backstage guide to passive investing. I love sharing what I've learned about passive investing, which frees you up to do the things you really care about every day. If you'd like to improve life for yourself, your family, and leave your corner of the world a little better than you found it through win win investment opportunities, then let's connect. I can help you transform your life and bring your priorities out from behind the curtains. Set up a meeting with me at pacenni.com. That's dot com. When you talk about fees, what are the typical fees that you would pay for a custodian? Because in our community left field investors, we're always having people, hey, which custodian should we go through? And of course, one of the main questions is, what are the costs? And your choice is going to depend on how many transactions you're doing also, right? If you're doing a flip, yeah obviously you're going to want as low a fees as possible because you're constantly moving money. But if you're just investing a chunk one time, it's less important.
1: Yeah. So I can speak to Quest fees. And I will also say that our fees are competitive in the market. We consistently review them, comparing them to our main competitors. And with our main competitors, they're fairly competitive. One thing I'll also say is I've found that you also in this industry get what you pay for. So if you want a custodian that's going to be pretty hands-on make sure things are done correctly, being able to contact them and receive responses. You're probably going to pay more than a custodian that simply sets you up an account and maybe sets you up checkbook control, and then you're off, right? Some people want someone to help them and kind of guide them through the processes and handle all the reporting. And some people just want, hey, set me up. I just want to buy this real estate. I don't care what happens afterwards. And so make those decisions. On average, typically what you're looking at is investment fees when they come to making transactions or purchases and then yearly administrative fees. So transactions or purchases, I define that as when you physically sign contracts. When you're signing contracts and you're buying a home or you're signing an operating agreement, that's when the custodian typically charges you a fee to execute on behalf of your IRA, and there's probably some review process that happened and occurred beforehand, just to give you a ballpark, Ours is 125 for that action, right? The next thing that you typically see is gonna be a yearly administrative fee. This is going to be how much does it cost me to hold my IRA account with you and hold assets. Typically, it always ties to accounts that hold assets. If you have just cash, typically those aren't considered assets. So if you're holding an asset, this is where you can have multiple structures. On average, a client investing fifty dollars to $100,000 is probably paying a three fifty dollars fee a year per asset they own. There are situations where I have clients who are investing into multiple assets at once. So, 350 times two, three, four, five can get pricey, and they start looking at other options. Other custodians like us have this option as well, where instead of paying per asset you own, you end up paying based on your total account value. And this can range anywhere between a $150 quarterly fee to a $200 quarterly fee for larger accounts. It can be much lower, too, by the way. But just giving you an idea, there's usually fee structures to play with. And then I will mention, since you talk about the flipping, for a person making consistent transactions, Typically, that's just like a banking fee. If you're sending wires out consistently, our wire fee in pretty much in the industry is $30, it's typically between $25 and $30, or ACHs, and ACHs are typically free. So sometimes you may have more costs by just sending money out consistently, but for the most part, it's usually that $125 and possibly $350 a year. Our most active clients with 10 plus assets, multiple accounts end up jumping ship to our gold family service. And what that means is that we encompass all of their structure, all their investments and all their accounts to one single fee of $3,000 a year. When you think about it, these are usually people who are investing 500 to a million dollars a year in multiple assets. So that's dirt cheap compared to kind of what they're investing. But yeah, if you're kind of thinking of ballpark, how much it's going to cost you think 300 to $400 a year is what I see as an average if you're
0: active. Okay. And then Other than fees, what factors should we consider when we're trying to choose an IRA custodian? Because there's all kinds of them out there, right? And fees is important, but there's got to be other factors as well. So what should we think about when we're choosing a custodian?
1: Yeah. So one thing I think is responsiveness. I've heard countless times that people change custodians because they don't get responses and or they don't know who to contact in certain situations. So being able to have a custodian that's going to be there when you need them to make Executions on investments. I mean, ultimately time is money here. And so how responsive are they? How quick can they fund investments? How knowledgeable is the staff in the asset class you're trying to invest into? And that's a big thing. And that's not even biased because if you tell me I want to invest into cryptocurrency, I don't know too much about cryptocurrency. Do we have the option? Yes, we do. But you might find a better considering that's more suited to cryptocurrency purchases or a gold coins or a gold and silver. We actually recommend someone else over us for that, right? There are the custodians that have depository relationships already where they can hold the gold and silver for you. So I also always think about what asset classes are you going to be investing into and is that custodian well-equipped to handle those investments? That's one question you always want to ask. And then just gauge the knowledge of the staff and what kind of things they offer because the more knowledgeable the staff, the more helpful they're going to be when you get into a bind if that occurs and that happens. Unfortunately, it happens a lot. So that's the two things I will look at, honestly.
0: Okay, excellent. And we hear a lot of talk about UBIT and UDFI. Can you explain those a little bit and when they come into play? And when you're investing in a syndication that uses leverage, a real estate deal that uses leverage, are these actual costs that you see people having to pay?
1: Gotcha, awesome, yeah. So defining UBIT, UBIT or Unrelated Business Taxable Income is a taxation that IRAs pay in three scenarios. The first scenario is owning and operating a business. So if I own a lemonade stand and I'm charging $5, I'm probably charging less than my competitors because an IRA doesn't pay taxes. So to level the playing field, if I'm owning and operating a business now, they're gonna charge taxes to the IRA and IRA pays it at a trust rate. So that's kind of an explanation of the reason one and a little bit about how much you pay. Reason two, we'll circle back to it. That's the unrelated debt financed income. So when you take out a loan or you leverage debt. And then reason three, leasing property not attached to real estate. The most common thing of this is if you buy a mobile home, but you don't own the land underneath, you're leasing property. So that occurs and ends up being a taxation for like running a leasing business or a jet skis, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. But the most common one we see is unrelated debt financed income. And that's either someone taking out a loan or the IRA taking out a loan from a non-recourse lender for the purchase of real estate or investing into a syndication. And the syndication obviously takes on large leverage. And so automatically it's kind of tied in, which sometimes deters people from the opportunity or kind of just makes it look less sexy. However, I don't think it's a reason to jump out of these investments or to even be scared of the taxation. Typically, in my experience, you still make pretty good money. And I'll explain that. So what ends up happening is the underlying company raising capital then goes off and takes a loan. So this asset in question is debt leveraged asset. And typically they're using LLCs, which I call our tax pass through entities. So they pass taxation onto their investors. So debt leveraging, the fact that they took on a loan theoretically is also passed down to the IRA account holder. Now, the IRA calendar holder usually is a percentage, a small, small percentage owner of the entire project as a whole. So it takes on a small, small percentage of that debt. What ends up occurring is years one, two, three typically doesn't necessarily have too much income to report. And so there's not UBIT to be worried about. Where UBIT occurs is in the back end. When you finally get paid off, they refinance, they sell, and you receive your returns plus some. When you receive your returns plus some, The income that you made may be subject to taxation. At this point in time, whenever that investment closed and they sold, a CPA through their paperwork would have to figure out how much of the asset was debt leveraged at the moment that you got paid off. Let's just say for math purposes, it was 50%. So what ends up happening if you receive $10,000 of income from this project, 50 of it goes back to your IRA, brain clear. The other fifty dollars or $5,000 will come into your IRA, but will be required to be reported to the IRS as income. That income will be taxed at a trust rate and will come out of your IRA account to pay the IRS. So it's nothing that comes out of pocket. Mm. It comes out of your IRA account. So right there, it still doesn't cost you anything. It's just a little bit to Uncle Sam out of the returns that you made. It's interesting to see the calculations. Now, I'm not going to go over calculations but I will mention that I actually ran through a real scenario on our YouTube channel with someone who calculated in two instances how much UDFI they ended up paying off to my top of my head memory serves me right the individuals made roughly between $45 to $60,000 and paid between $9 to $13,000 in taxes out of their IRA account so in a time span of 4 or 5 years they still ended up making about $40,000 to $50,000, even after paying taxation or after IRA pay taxation. So it's a smaller percentage than you end up thinking would end up having to be paid. But it is something to be aware of, because if you are investing in syndications, you most likely will incur this. And when you do, having a CPA in your corner that understands the situation is going to be 100% key. Your custodian will not calculate this for you. The calculation is very, very complicated. And you'll have to figure out how much you owe Report it on what's called a 990T. It's the IRA tax form. Provide the 990T to your custodian. And then your custodian would take the 990T, see how much that you owe in taxes and send that check or ACH or wire directly to the IRS to pay that expense. So I hope I didn't butcher that. It's kind of a complicated thing. It helps with visuals. So I highly recommend... <laughs> Second, that video I mentioned, but I can send it to you after if you want.
0: Yeah, please do. I'll include that in the show notes. That was a good explanation because that's always something that we're talking about, and that's one of the main reasons that some of the investments you do in your IRA you would prefer to do them outside of your IRA if you have the capital right, so you can use those tax benefits and you don't lose them. Then, if you're hmm. investing in leverage deals inside your IRA, you know your returns are going to be a little bit less than they would be outside just because of that tax issue, the UDFI, which is why. You know, mostly, at least in my IRA, and it sounds like you do some of the same stuff as private money loans or lending or debt, it just seems more efficient in that vehicle.
1: Yeah, I will say though, just based on experience, I want to get into a multifamily deal myself within my retirement account, working on getting that capital up to meet those minimums. But I want to because I know they make pretty solid money. And those returns are typically larger than what I'm able to get private money lending. Private money lending, I'm everywhere between 10 to 13% on a really good note. So If I can get into one of those deals, I think I can get about 20 to 28% return on my money. So even with that, I would just say kind of running the numbers, figuring out whether or not it's better to do it within the IRA or outside of the IRA. I understand there's benefits to both. And the good thing is you don't have to pick and choose. If you have personal capital and retirement capital, maybe you can do both. If you're in the position where you only have IRA capital and you're thinking, should I take a distribution and then do it myself? then I would 100% say to run the numbers first because a distribution is gonna first add to your income, so it depends how much it is and how big that tax burden is gonna be, and then two, possibly cause penalties. So it's just a situation that I think would require a sit-down with an accountant to really run through the numbers and see what's your best option. But I 100% agree. It's really a personal preference, and if you wanna avoid it entirely, you can avoid it by doing loans. It never occurs UBIT or UDFI, or investing into C-corporations. C-corporations don't pass the taxation like LLCs do. And so you won't have to worry about it in a C-corporation setup.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't realize that. And then so at 59 and a half, that's when you can access your IRA money without paying the fees. So when you reach that age and you have a self-directed IRA, does it change what type of assets you want to hold? or if you want to take distributions and you have a syndication, how does that all work once you're starting to make withdrawals from your account or you want to make
1: withdrawals? That's a really good question because at 59 and a half, it may change the asset classes that you invest into. You have to think about your personal situation. Will you be dependent on the funds there? Are you trying to use those funds for the purpose of retirement, what they're for, or is it really just for wealth building or you use it later, you still have some savings elsewhere? Right? So good question because if you are in the position where you're going to need the funds, you have to think about the longevity and the liquidity of these asset classes. This happens a lot for individuals who end up turning 72 or above because at 72, not only are you a retirement age, but you're also required, at least in traditional IRAs, pre-tax accounts, to take a minimum distribution on a yearly basis. So if you wanted to leave money in there, you have to take out something by age 72 and on. So what happens now is if you find yourself in a situation where you have to take money out, whatever reason, but you're an illiquid asset, what do you do? You have no cash to take it out. One thing we do is we say, do you have IRAs elsewhere? If it's in purpose of RMDs, so the required minimum distributions, that can be satisfied any other retirement account that you have if you have it. If you do not, now it gets a little bit more complicated. You have to actually take personal distributions of the asset itself. So that is possible. So there is a solution. So what does that look like? If I'm taking a distribution of the asset I own and that asset is the syndication or it's a private money loan or it's a physical real estate asset, what's going to happen now is I have to transfer the ownership of that asset from my IRA's name to my personal name. That causes taxation. So I'd have to get it evaluated if it's worth $10,000, $50,000 or $100,000. I would be adding that amount to my income that year. Even if I didn't receive 10, dollars $100,000, I wouldn't receive, be receiving cash, I'd be receiving the asset. And mm-hmm. then moving forward, it'd be as if you owned it from the beginning. So that's kind of what ends up happening and occurring. So definitely a thought that you should have, especially as you start reaching age 72 specifically, is how liquid are my assets and what am I investing into? Making sure you have enough to meet your living requirements and what you need to take out the money.
0: Yeah, that makes good sense. So the last question I ask in the podcast is, What's a great podcast that you like to listen to?
1: Yeah, so I was thinking about this because weirdly enough, I don't listen to too many like financial podcasts, actually. I listen to a lot of comedians, honestly. I really do. I just, when I'm driving, for work, I drive to Dallas and Austin a lot. And so those three to four hour to five hour drives, I put on a podcast and it's usually a comedian. I like that. But what's very, very interesting and pretty informative as well is, I don't know if you've heard of the Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan Harbinger is a guy who reads tons of books. And what he usually does is he interviews the individual who wrote that book. And they're usually someone very, very interesting. Examples of people he's had on are like brain surgeons. And this one that was very, very cool was an individual who spent his time in Afghanistan as a CIA operative, acting like a photographer, getting intel for the CIA. So his name and everything was redacted, but he was talking about his experiences. And to me, that was super interesting because you only see those guys in movies, but he was talking about what he actually went through in real life. And there were situations where he had to act friendly with calling the bad guys. And he got put in situations that he had to quickly get thick on his feet and get out of. Otherwise, he may have been forced to kill someone that obviously he shouldn't can't do. So he has to get out of some weird situations and some pretty intense ones. So it was very interesting. So that's just an example of that podcast. And there's tons of episodes. I mean, like over 600 episodes, maybe more than that. And so you can just go through the list and just randomly pick one. If you see the individual's bio and they sound interesting, astronauts, all those kinds of guys, people that are doing cool things out there.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. That's cool. I'm going to have to check that one out. I have heard of it, but I have not listened to it. So thanks for sharing that. So if listeners want to get in touch with you or hear more about Quest, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah. So two ways, or actually maybe three ways. One, you can always call in the main line, and honestly, we're a pretty small company, 100 employees, but my name is Juan Deshawn. You can always call me and just say, I'd like to speak with Juan Deshawn, I saw him on a podcast, and I'm happy to assist. If I'm not available, as I mentioned, I travel, we do events, et cetera, we do webinars like this, speak to any IRA specialist. Those are the individuals in my team, there's about eight to nine of us, and they can answer any questions, everything I've answered today, they know, and so they can help you out. Another thing too if you want to just quickly go to our website and check out questtrustcompany.com we have an educations tab we have a youtube channel and we have tons of videos and our main goal is to educate as much as possible but the reason why I'd go to the website too is we have a chat box so from 8:30 to 5:30 p.m. central Monday through Friday we actually have someone on my team on the chat box so it's not someone from across the country where you can go ahead and ask a question whether it be about your account or just questions about you know in general about IRAs or what we do you can start chatting with them Typically, they'll answer the question pretty quickly. And if it's something that, for example, if you go in the chat box and ask me, do I owe UBIT or UDFI and how do I calculate it? I'm probably not going to chat that all in the chat box. I'm going to ask you, what's your phone number? Let's set up a call. Or maybe even call you right then and there. But it's a good way to get in contact with someone almost immediately. And it's very, very easy and resourceful.
0: Excellent. I will put all that information in the show notes. So thank you very much, Juan, for being a guest. This has been great learning about self-directed IRAs. We appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks.
0: At BAM Capital, we democratize institutional-grade multifamily assets for the individual investor. Since inception, we've averaged over a 31% annualized return net to our investors. My name is Ivan Barrett. I'm the founder and CEO of BAM Capital. I sincerely hope you go to the website, capital.com com and check out BAM Capital. That was a great conversation with Juan learning about self-directed IRAs. I've had a self-directed IRA and I currently have what he terms a solo 401k, but I have to admit, I did not know all the ins and outs of it. So it was nice to hear that. And the first thing he said is the self-directed IRA is really no different than a regular IRA, except that the custodian, which in this case would be Quest or yourself or one of the other self directed IRA companies, they allow you a broader set of choices and what to invest in than does a Fidelity or Schwab. Fidelity and Schwab kind of lock you into their platform and invest in what they want you to invest in, whereas these custodians for the self directed IRAs allow you to invest in a lot more things. You just have to run it through them. So the rules and the tax treatment are all the same. You just have a little bit more control over where you're investing your money. And he talked about the custodians and making sure that they have experts relating to what you're investing in. And that was interesting to me. I hadn't thought of that, but it would be helpful to when you're talking to your custodian and trying to get money for an investment from them or get their permission, I guess, because you have to run it by them at least to have someone there that understands the asset class that you're investing in. He even said, you know, if you're doing gold, they have a better company that does it differently than they do. And so they recommend somebody else, which I think that's what you want from a custodian or a professional is when they know that they don't have the expertise that you're looking for, that they're okay to recommend you to go somewhere else so you get what you need, rather than just trying to, someone that can be effective for everyone, because no one can cover every situation. So I like that Quest is able to recognize that. And then we had a conversation about the UDFI, and that's always interesting to me because UDFI, UBIT, that's a big thing that people talk about, and the more you look into it, it's really not that big of a deal potentially because yes you'd like to avoid taxes and if you invest in syndications outside of your qualified accounts you are unlikely to pay tax on it so if you can do it outside of your IRA I would always do that first but if you run out of capital and the only capital you have is in your self-directed IRA and there is a multifamily deal or self-storage deal that you really think is going to be a great deal Well, yeah, go ahead and invest in it. You might have some UBIT or some UDFI, some kind of tax that you have to pay, but that's better than just keeping your money in cash or putting it in paper assets, right? So you have to compare it to what your other options are. So I don't think UBIT isn't necessarily a deal killer. And I prefer to use my qualified accounts, which are the self-directed IRA, self-directed 401k accounts for debt types of investments. And so that way I'm not losing any tax benefit. And in fact, I'm gaining because I won't have to pay taxes until the end. So great conversation about self-directed IRAs. I know in our forum that the infielders have access to, there's been a lot of conversations about which custodian is the best. And so I think we got some ideas from Juan on how to talk about that and how to think about that. So I appreciate him being on. And that's all we have this time. We'll see you next time in the left field.